Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. And to everyone out in cyberspace, wherever you may be, Simon Jacobson here for another episode of Wednesday Night Live. And we're talking about um, avoiding passing on the trauma of our lives to our children. This class is dedicated to Mick. Ayela Klempner on the occasion of her 10th birthday. Okay. If you want to dedicate a class, you can easily go to our website. There's dedications and sponsorship opportunities, or call us or contact us at meaningfullife.com. We're trying to be on all the channels and all the social media channels and every possible distribution platform there is out there. So, this is a topic which uh, is both a painful one but an extremely relevant one. I already received quite a few emails today um, talking about how people are looking forward to hear about this because it's one of those topics that you don't, uh, people don't speak about a lot because either because they don't know what to say or because it's uncomfortable and so on. And that is basically how do we prevent our past lives, our past um, trauma or dysfunctionality or negative experiences in the past of and past experiences of our life not pollute or cloud our current and future relationships all types of relationships whether it's romantic relationships or it's relationships with friends or um, spousal relationship or obviously also relationship with our children and it's a challenging question because it really addresses the issue of how much are we a victim of circumstances, and uh, how much are we tr- are we defined by what has happened to us in our past? So, we'll take this step by step and begin with number one. Obviously, when we're all born in this world, that we'll come into this world like freshly fallen snow. We're pure and innocent, and vulnerable, and um, basically unblemished and unjaded by life experiences. Our first, our first effects of this uh, world, on, the first effects of the world on us is going to come most likely from our parents because that's the first people we're exposed to. Then the next step will be siblings. And finally, our school. Well, not finally. Next step would be school, our teachers, our classmates, our friends. And as we grow and become more exposed to our, our, our circle of of influences that influence us will broaden as we begin to interact with wider and wider circles until the point when you leave home, go to other schools, go to summer camp, and then finally go to work and to build your life on your own, meaning leaving your parents' home and going on your own, then you will also encounter the relationships that we have, serious relationships, less serious relationships, but at that point, we've already been affected by many, many factors in our lives. And generally, we'll divide them into three categories, the factors that affect us. And that is our, uh, our natural predispositions, meaning each of us have our own natural wiring and programming, which can be hereditary, and some of it can be influences by uh, early... Well, you know, let's reserve that for the second category. The second category is parental influences, things at home that have influenced us, attitudes, projected attitudes and so on. And finally, the third is social factors. So we have our inherent 
biases and prejudices, and we have those that were affected by our parental environment, our homes. And finally, our, the third is our social. Now, obviously, social goes in that order. You're born a certain way, then comes the parental, and then comes the social. As, as I mentioned, we begin to enter into the world around. Now, all this would be fine if the world was a perfect world and a pure world, and there were no hostile forces, and there were no predators, and there were no parasites, and there weren't people who were selfish, and their selfishness end up using and hurting other people. The problem is, as children, we're also extremely impressionable and vulnerable, and therefore, it's not that we're very prote- we don't have protection from all these forces. So if we're lucky and we're blessed and we grow up in a home that's a healthy, nurturing, and functional environment, it will help cultivate the self-confidence and the security and the validation we need to be able to grow up into healthy adults. If, unfortunately, however, we grow up in a home that does not do that and undermines our uh, self-worth and self-esteem, that also is going to have impact on how we process things and how we second-guess ourselves and how the confidence level as we make choices later in life. These are all pretty obvious and very basic things. The three categories, just for the record, I mention that because I, I usually use a reference from the Torah, the Bible, where it talks about where God says to Abraham, leave Lech Lecha, uh, your homeland, your place, place of birth, and the home of your parents. Those three expressions allude to these three forms of subjectivity that I just described, and that is, again, birthplace would be your natural instincts, your natural genetic makeup, and we have, each of us has our own uh, blueprint. We have number two, is Beis Avecha is the home of our parents, that parental influences, and finally, Artsakha um, is the society in which we live, and this includes everything. This includes media, uh, the, the different content that you digest, and that is streamed in your direction, and of course, your colleagues and friends and co-workers and and, and and schoolmates, and everything that affects us in society. So if you think about it, it could be quite formidable, the mere fact that we have all these fast forces really shaping us, and where does it leave us? Can we find ourselves? This is a topic, this is a recurring topic I talk about all the time, because essentially it really lies at the heart of who are you? Who are you as versus of what has shaped you and what has affected you? Now, in the context of the discussion in this class, traumas and negative experiences means that if you indeed have grown up in an environment where there was some negative experiences in your life and even trauma, that has a direct impact on who you are and as such will impact who you will become and how you will deal with issues, which is very common that the way we've seen our parents, for example, address problems, let's say rage, whenever they're frustrated, you saw a parent express through rage, others through silence and passivity, others through other methods. That will often be the first, uh, the first examples and role models that determine how you're going to react because it becomes something almost like second nature. You see every time your mother reacted to something or your father, that is very likely the way you're going to react because what other alternatives do you have? Until you either check yourself and you introspectively look at your own behavior and realize that maybe not the right way to react. But I can't tell you how many people have, have told me, this is, seems to me the natural way. And I say, it's not the natural way. It's the way your father or mother reacted. There's many other ways to deal with a problem. There may be healthier ways. So when we experience different things in our, form, in our formative years, which shape us, it seems to be that it's inevitable that we're going to project and pass that on to everyone around us 
because we're going to that, that that has defined us. Now, obviously, if that was the case, that we wouldn't have a class here, and I could just say good night and say, okay, too late, you're damaged goods, and there's nothing you can do about it. But that obviously is not the case. And the good news is that even though yes, we are influenced by our natural predispositions and by our parental influences, and by our childhoods and by society and all the above, yet we have to remember we are not uh, inanimate objects. Like if you make a dent in a stone or a dent in a tree, well, I don't know about a tree, but a dent in a certain object, that's it. It's dented forever. So if you create damage in something, you're damaged forever. We have what is called the spirit. The human spirit has a profound resilience. So just like you cut yourself in your finger, what happens? It's not a permanent damage. The cut will, will bleed. It will then clot. And a scab will develop. That scab will then heal after a few days. And then it's gone. And as if it never happened. So there's a regenerative process. Even to the physical body. And how much so to the spirit. So this is a critical thing that you have to always remember. All of us. That we are not victims of our pasts. That doesn't mean you don't have a cut or a wound. Or deeper than that. But the resilience of the spirit allows you to regenerate. I don't know if you ever took one of these tours. They take you and uh, let's say you go to these places in the West or anywhere in the woods. So these real experts, these nature experts, they give you sometimes, they show you in a forest that here there was a fire. They could even tell you when exactly the fire, there was a big fire. And, they, and, and you see the, it regrew, it regenerated. But they could show you trees that were once affected by the fire. And then you see the fascinating thing how a forest regenerates even after a fire it regrows everything and sometimes even healthier than it was in the first place that's why you'll find very often there are controlled fires to allow forests and other uh, natural environments to regenerate it's almost like um, shedding an old layer of skin to assume a new one and even the human body has elements of that for example like baby teeth that grow into adult teeth why don't we just have, why don't we just born with adult teeth? Because our mouths are too small. But we need to already begin to chew and digest. So first we give baby teeth. And around, what is it, five, six years old, those teeth begin to fall out. And you get a whole new set of teeth. Now, of course, in the animal kingdom, you have many examples. You have the skins of, 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 of snakes. You have the crab's uh, shell. And many that, that they, uh, they shed. And then they regrow, sometimes in seasonally sometimes once or twice in a lifetime. But for us, that's also the case. Our skin, for example, is completely regenerative, like I just exa- example, with the bleeding. Our skin sheds, not in a very profound way. You don't see it, but it does, and it's constantly regrowing. And the same thing with, with other parts of our bodies. Our nails are example, our hair. The point I'm making, these are physical examples. In the spirit, even though we may have been burned, let's say, or been hurt in some way, but the spirit has resilience. And that resilience is what gives us the hope and the ability to overcome and transcend things that have happened to us in our past. That's a general statement. Now, obviously, things are more complicated than just because there are clearly deep trauma that can have an impact for the rest of our lives. But there's also deep resilience. And, of course, we'll be talking about that. So the the operative question then, and I'm beginning to answer it, is, firstly, is it possible? Is it possible for us not to project and pass on and be affected by past behavior affecting our future behavior? That's the first question. So the short answer is absolutely. 
The answer is absolutely you do not have to be a victim of the past to move forward into the future because for one simple reason, there's the resilience of the spirit. And just like our skin sheds or we can heal or other experiences that allow us to grow, we can grow through those experiences. But there are a few conditions of how you grow. Because you see the fact is, the fact of life is that very often a negative experience in our lives absolutely impact us. I mean, uh, just to give some strong examples. You meet people at times, sadly, who say they don't want to build a family because they were hurt as children, and I don't want to bring children into the world that I may hurt or will be hurt. So they make a choice because I was hurt. I don't want to bring children into the world that will be hurt. That's a very strong example. There are other examples of the same. Because I was hurt in relationships or I saw hurtful relationships, I, don't, I will never be vulnerable again. I will never allow myself to be hurt. So you, you, you basically build for yourself a set of armor that protects you from being hurt. And your relationships are going to be somewhat always on the surface level. As it gets too close for comfort, you will retreat, which is a common thing where people, when they get too vulnerable or they feel too close for comfort emotionally or intimately, and they will retreat because they don't want to be hurt. Sometimes people do this very deliberately and very consciously. Sometimes, in more cases, actually, it's not so deliberate. It's knee-jerk reaction. It's just like, for example, I mentioned this many times, if, uh, for, for God forbid, somebody, let's say, has injured a part of their body, an arm or a leg, and that injury has repeated itself several times, so next time someone touches you, you're going to be very careful. You're going to pull back. And when you walk, you're going to make sure not to put too much pressure on that part of your body. Because you've been hurt. And it's a natural thing is once a person is hurt, a, the body has, a memory, has memories. And that memory includes, I've been hurt, so I'm be careful. Now, sometimes that's important to do when you're healing. But then once the healing is over, you don't want to remain with a psychological scar that physically you can use that part of the body, but because psychologically you still remember it, you still avoid that experience. The same thing is in this type of scenarios. There are things in life that may have hurt us there may be trauma. There may be the effects of trauma. There are other experiences we've had in our childhood or even in our adult lives that, that were very hurtful. So you could really have really three options. One option is you just ignore the whole thing and you're like in denial and you make believe like it never happened. And sometimes that can cause a lot of problems because by ignoring it and that wound opens up again, you may be not prepared and you can be re-traumatized. That's one thing that could happen. A second option is that you're extremely extra careful not to go in that area because you don't want to be hurt again. And then you're basically cutting off certain options because you are afraid to go there. Or what we're going to be discussing, option three, which is the healthiest option, you access the resilient energy of your spirit that helps you learn from what has happened. You're not denying it, but you're also not a victim to it. And you learn to grow from it. You learn to transcend it. And you learn to embrace relationships or other experiences in life, even though the past experiences may have hurt you in that regard. And of course, that's the place we all want to be because you don't want to live a life of fear where you're afraid to go to certain areas because you've been hurt there. You also don't want to live in denial as if it never happened because you can also get deeply hurt. So the third option is the healthiest option, but of course, as always, the healthiest option takes work and takes effort. And there, but, but there is a methodology to it. 
So the science of it, I've begun to explain, I'll just sum it up again. The science of it is very similar to the science of healing in the body. As I said, you get cut on a finger. Again, I will talk about deeper cuts in a moment. Regular cut, it bleeds for a short while. You may put a Band-Aid on it, you may not. At some point, it will clot. The the blood will dry up, it will become a scab. The scab will take a few days to heal, then it will fall off as if nothing happened. Who did that? That was done without any medical intervention. That was not done without medicine. That was just the natural healing properties of the body. And this is common, not just a cut, almost anything that affects you has that ability. Now, obviously, the next question is, what happens if the cut is deeper? Let's say it went a little deeper. Of course, the deeper it is, the more healing it needs. And sometimes you will need intervention. You may need some, God forbid, you may need uh, antibiotics to fight infection. You may even need a form, not you, someone may need a form of surgery or something, or you need to, um, if, if something tore or something broke. And, but if you ask any doctor, they will tell you, we don't heal. We facilitate healing. The body has a power to heal. Sometimes that healing power is also impeded by either the infection or the wound. So what you do is, what medicine can do, is create an environment, a situation that allows for the healing to take place. For example, when they put a cast or some other way of uh, repairing a broken or fractured bone. The cast is not the healer. The cast is creating an environment that the bones stay together so while the healing process can take hold and then the natural healing process, if you don't have that cast, you, you will keep your, the, 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 the bone will never be able to be in a place where it, it is not affected by the tensions and the pressures around it so it can never really grow back, so to speak, or reconnect. This is common. Now, Obviously, there are times where we endure a scar that lasts. You know, there are scars. You know, you can have a cut that is a deep enough cut. And even though it's healed, you could still see a sign of it. But that doesn't mean you're an unhealthy person. You know, if let's say someone's, God forbid, had a you know, cut. Let's say I, I remember when I was a kid, I was, it was actually Pesach, right before Passover. And like, I thought I was a wise guy. And I saw my mother and I saw my, my, you know, my family all like cutting stuff. And these knives, these very sharp knives. So, yeah, I cut something. I forgot what it was. Maybe a carrot, maybe a piece of crane, uh, like horseradish. And it went right through my um, middle finger here, left middle finger. And I'm looking. Yeah, there's the scar. In case you don't believe me, I'm happy to show you after the class. You can trust me on this. A white little line. Now, I don't even notice it, to be honest, but I remember it. It was bleeding. And not only bleeding, you know, when you really hit, I didn't hit a bone, but I hit something like almost a... uh, you know, you hit the white place. It was, yeah, it's painful just to talk about it. The point I'm making is, I didn't have to go, thank God, to a hospital or anything, but they, they, they uh, bandaged it. So I a scar. Has this scar affected my life? No. I didn't, I didn't know to go to therapy. I don't have any resistance to eating horseradish on Passover. I don't have any of the phobias connected to this scar. So what does that mean? That the healing happened. I, yes, I do have a, a memory of it, and I do have this white line, but... I've grown through it. And if anything, if I did it right, I learned from it. I learned to be careful with knives. That's the first lesson. Secondly, I learned that the human being can heal. <laughs> and even though at the time it's looked pretty bad. Um, so sometimes a scar itself is not per se a bad thing. If you can transcend the scar. If, however, the scar keeps you victimized and keeps you controlled, that's when 
we need to address it, which I, of course, I will do. So I'm going, you know, step by step. My point is, all these examples teach us one thing. There is tremendous resilience to the human body, and I will tell you even more so with the human spirit. Because remember, the body at the end of the day is a, is a physical thing. And even there you have find this healing and regenerative elements. The spirit is not even physical. The spirit is an ethereal force. And the spirit, even though it could be hurt, but its healing powers are even greater than the body's healing powers. But they could also <clears throat> be also deeper scars. Because, for example, a cut on my finger, was not, was not, it was not emotional betrayal. Nobody violated me. Nobody hurt me emotionally. I wasn't insulted. I wasn't abused. I wasn't traumatized in the emotional sense of the word. It was a physical thing. When someone hurts you, either through violence or through abuse, through verbal abuse, or other forms of, uh, of, um, of violating you, whether it's physically or emotionally, that, that scar can be a lot deeper one because it hurts, it tears your heart. When a child is berated, especially time and again, or someone close to us does something to us that, that betrays us or abandons us, or another way if we, feel, we feel hurt by them, that hurt is far deeper than any physical pain. But, as I said, just as much we can be emotional, emotional pain is worse than physical pain, emotional resilience is also just as powerful because the spirit has natural healing powers. And what I find, and I could say without hesitation, without unequivocally, that most of us don't even access those healing powers. We get trapped in the anger or the bitterness or the victimization or the demoralization of emotional hurt. When it comes to the body, whether you like it or not, the, the cut is going to heal. You know, obviously, a deeper cut, you need to do something about it, but it's going to heal. And it's not up to you, really. You know, it bleeds, it, uh, cl- it clots, scab, healed. When it comes to emotional hurt, there we can become part of the enemy because how we react to it can either determine that we're going to grow and heal from it or we can become contributing to the problem. And that is when we allow it to demoralize us and we allow it to affect us more than it should, then you are giving up in a way on your own ability, your own resilience and regenerative powers. So the first thing, how do you deal with that? Let's start with that. Then we'll talk about the trauma itself. Well, that comes down to how you see yourself. And this is the catch-22. When a person is traumatized in any way, what happens is there are two problems, two great crimes have happened. One is the actual the actual pain that was done, the actual pain that was uh, perpetrated on the person, on the on the on the abusee, so to speak, and then the second thing is that the undermining of your self confidence, and that's in many ways worse than the first, because it's one thing somebody hurts you in one way or another, but and you know what, you can afterwards go and find help and do something about it. But if it undermines and, and upsets your entire equilibrium and your self-confidence, then you feel like you're damaged goods. You feel you don't deserve help. You feel almost that you blame yourself for the crime, which is why they say a very harsh expression, but I'll use it anyway. You know, we are among adults here. That the silence is worse than the rape. It's a famous expression in the healing world. Why? Because as, as bad as a violation of that I just mentioned could be, but the silence afterwards, which means that it's ignored, your pain is ignored, and your, um, your crying is ignored, as, as if nothing happened, 
then you're not only that there was the violation, but you're also being invalidated. You don't even have the dignity to say, you know, I demand justice or I demand that this be repaired or I demand an apology. Because you're turned into, so, the, so you're turned a double, into a double shmata. How do you say shmata? Rags. Or, that you're worthless. Why? Because besides the actual violation, it's also that you're not even worthy of a respect, of respect, of being believed. Which is why in healing you'll always see breaking the silence is such a big thing. Because people remain silent when things happen to them because they're either ashamed or they think no one will believe them or they feel they're at fault in some way. Guilt. And when you do that, then the problem becomes far, far greater. Because that's like as if like it didn't happen. So how could you heal when you don't even know that something happened or you don't even feel that you deserve that someone should acknowledge you? And that is the secondary effect, which, yes, in pure firepower, obviously a crime, a violation is much worse than the silence that comes afterwards. But if you talk about emotional and psychological damage, far more the second, because the second means there's not even hope. It would be like, God forbid, let's say a person is in a burning building. You know, God forbid, right? And, and, and people yell at you, no, the building isn't burning. Don't worry about it, just stay there. You start second-guessing yourself, so you're not even going to do anything to run out of the building. It's, so the fire is bad enough. Now you're not only is a fire, you're also being told there's no fire. Well, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining it. Just to use a, I'm using a, a, a foolish example, but just to make the point. So what happens now is, if nothing is done, unchecked, the healing process can't even begin. Because you are now, you're believing, you almost believe that you deserve this, or you believe that you're responsible, or you believe the, 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 the message being told to you that you're worthless. So if you're worthless... Where is their healing? So suddenly now you are becoming, it would be literally as if, the cut, go back to the physical cut, you have a cut in your finger, it's healing, but you decide to keep tearing it open. Because you feel, you feel like you don't deserve to be healed, or you feel like it can be healed, or whatever it is. How insane is that, right? So even the natural healing process can't take hold. Which is why it's so vital, as you'll see today, for example, when there's any type of trauma experiences, you know, Look, take even the latest shooting in uh, this tragic shooting in Parkland, Florida, the school. So you'll see all the early interveners, besides the early intervention dealing with the shooter and all that, is dealing with the parents who suddenly are shocked by the fact they send their children one morning to school and the next thing, the worst nightmare has happened. It's not such an easy thing to deal with. And, and you need real professionals who know how to help people get through the shock and, and begin some catharsis, some type of healing, of dealing with this. And it's not easy at all. And if you don't deal with it early on, well, it can create long-term tremendous damage because a person needs, needs, needs help, needs support in times like that. You know, I, I don't like to talk about negative things, but it's part of the discussion here. That, that is why if you know the wisdom and the psychology of Shiva, God forbid when someone passes away, and we sit Shiva for that person, a parent or a loved one, Shiva is a very, very healing and deeply psychologically healing process. No one should ever know of this, but I could talk from my own experience. When I sat Shiva for my father, it's, I couldn't believe the wisdom and the psychological insight of the process of, of sitting seven days. And you don't go anywhere, you don't go to work, and you're surrounded by friends and family, and they just, and the truth is, they make you crazy. Because, like, you know, they just don't stop coming. But in a way, it buffers those early days when a person has a lot of shock and the shock of death, no matter how old the parent was, it's always a shock. 
and it has a certain buffering element. I don't want to go into it right now, it's not so relevant. My point is that it's critical to know healing, and any given healing, especially emotional and psychological healing, is, there's a wisdom to it, there's a science to it. And that science is very much part of how we don't allow ourselves to become victims. Because it's very easy to feed into the voice that says you're worthless, you deserved it, you were guilty. If you would have done this, it, would have been, it wouldn't have happened, blah, blah, blah. The whole list of, of, of uh, self-accusatory uh, statements we make about ourselves. And above all, it undermines and demoralizes our own spirit. So what do you think is happening? You're, demoral- you're undermining the spirit that has the power to heal. You're not letting it heal. Which is why, you asked me about Tanya, in chapter 26 in Tanya, when he talks about the, the devastating effects of uh, depression, what's called in Hebrew, atzvut, he says, the, the, the classic example, tremendous example, he says, so imagine you're wrestling with somebody. You know, two wrestlers. Two wrestlers, they're wrestling with each other, and not, we don't know who's stronger. But suddenly, you, loo- you become very depressed, you become very demoralized, you feel you're not able to win this wrestle. Now, for all practical purposes, you may be even stronger than the, your opponent, but you have, in your mind, psychologically lost it. Like, you know, you see this happening in sports. Sometimes the greatest tennis players or the greatest Olympians or the greatest this lose confidence. They get into a funk. Something happened. I don't know, something got into their head. And you see this all the time. Sometimes very good players know how to get into the other person's head. And they psych you out. So, so technically, you may be far better than the opponent, but, now, but you've been demoralized. Your spirit has been broken. So you convince yourself maybe you're not that good. You start second-guessing yourself. And what happens in this wrestling match? Even though you would have the power to win, the demoralization of the depressive state causes you, that weakens you, and then you can't live up to your own strengths. So how many battles have we lost in our lives? Or how many battles have we not even entered in our lives? And I don't mean battling in a negative way that we have to go to war. I don't mean that. I mean to say challenges in our lives. Have we not rose, have we not risen to the occasion to because we convinced ourselves I'm not capable. And had you known what you're capable of, you would have, you would have realized you could prevail. It's hard to say because that comes down to the measure of our own self-confidence. And also knowing that sometimes better to try and fail than not to try. Because if you don't try, you for sure won't know whether you're capable. Here, at least you can grow from it. Even if you make a mistake, okay, next time I'll do it better. So therefore, this, 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 the power of the resilient power of healing of the spirit is very much dependent on our attitude. Which is why it's so critical to have friends and have uh, even literature and materials that help bolster and reinforce your confidence. You're going to hang around other demoralized people, rest assured, it's not going to help you grow. And unfortunately, misery loves company, and that's what people do when they've been hurt. Very often, they hang around with other people that have been hurt. And everybody loves it because it's like reinforcing that you're worthless. So you hang around with the worthless people of the world. I don't mean to put it so... I don't mean to be so demeaning. I'm just making a point. You know? Like I just remember a few months, when was it? Uh, a year or two ago. So uh, a young woman, a young woman who was coming to this class and she got engaged, thank God. She lived in the Upper West Side. And she told me something which I wasn't surprised to hear. She said to me, you know, it's interesting. My friends, my closest friends, I used to, used to all go to these singles parties and party and stuff. They all feel I betrayed them by getting engaged. Now she wasn't 19 years old. We're talking about someone in the mid-30s. 
but she feels betrayed. And she says, I remember once you said in a class that sometimes singles can become the Lonely Hearts Club. You know, that becomes like, you know, like a club. And everybody feels better because everybody else is, you know, sometimes it's not so much, you feel better because, you know, everybody else is suffering too. So why not? It feels good. At least you're not, uh, you're not an exception. But that's a perfect example of reinforcing everything that weakens your spirit and is not going to get you very far. So I said to her, I said, look, you know, what kind of friends are they? If they don't celebrate you getting engaged, what is that? She says, they don't say it, but that's what they're suggesting. Almost like I, you know, like I betrayed the club. So I said, what do they all expect to be like? The, you don't want to be like the, the exciting spinsters of the world? What, what is this exactly, you know? Anyway, the point being is that that sometimes happens. Because it makes it a little easier, but it's not really easier. It's just a cop-out, to be honest. So the key thing to remember is this, this step, what we're at now. That no matter what happens to you in your life, what has happened to you in your childhood or your adult life, trauma, negative experiences, does not define you. It's happened to you, but it does not define you. Like I often talk about when you talk about people who've suffered. Suffering does, is, you, a person may be a sufferer, but doesn't mean, I'm sorry, a person may have suffered, they don't become a sufferer. The difference is between the verb and the noun. A noun is a state of being. It's not just an action. You can experience something that doesn't make you the thing you experienced. Just like many things happen in life, we experience it. It could be a good experience, it could be a negative, but it doesn't define you. And that's critical. They're, they're success stories. Because they've, we've suffered greatly, but we have not become sufferers. We have not become victims. That doesn't, that, so the, the key is not becoming a victim is not that you haven't suffered, is that you don't let suffering define you and you, don't, and, you, and you allow the resilience of your spirit to counter anything that happens. Now, I'm not saying it's easy because as I mentioned earlier, a child growing up in a traumatic environment is of course going to feel as part of who that person is. May even feel they deserved it or may feel that they're worthless in the process. So what is the work that's necessary? The work that's necessary is first the cognitive type of um, intervention of understanding that your spirit is resilient and, is, and can transcend what has happened to you. Secondly, you are not defined by what has happened to you. And thirdly, whatever has happened to you, you can use as a springboard to learn from and grow from as you transcend it. And that is, those three things are the key to making sure that you don't repeat it. Because the natural, the natural thing that may happen, as I mentioned before at length, is that you will just repeat what was projected, what was happened to you, you'll project onto others. So, for example, you saw rage in your childhood, you saw that people, people reacted to different challenging situations in unhealthy ways. Your knee-jerk reaction is to do the same until you check yourself. And then you just perpetuate the vicious cycle. The, the process, or the same thing with trauma which is why very often you, f you hear, for example, the, the phenomenon called children of Holocaust survivors. So you think Holocaust survivors, we understand, is a very challenging thing. People who were literally re remained, remained uh, completely alone after uh, the Holocaust and uh, the, the fears involved and even the guilt that you remained and not your family. So that's one thing. But then there's children of Holocaust survivors have very deep impact on them because the parents who suffered such trauma usually project that trauma on the children. And those children suffer greatly in a different way. They didn't go into concentration camps, but they made sure to remember that either you were lucky and, and that you didn't go or other scenarios. Why? Because these people who've been traumatized are projecting it 
and it defines how they, how, how they, how they interact with their own relationships. So then when you look at a, let's say, a marital relationship, husband and wife, okay? Or a relationship between parents and children. Take any case study. The first question you have to ask yourself when you see, let's say, a problem, is this based on pr- previous traumas and previous history of these parents, and therefore they're bringing it into their relationship? Or is it actually an objective problem that you can just say, okay, here, is, here are the issues, let's deal with it. So you can rest assured, if it's a serious problem, it's most likely connect to something from the past. Because we adults, if someone says something to you or something happens to you, we have pretty natural resilience, a natural way to repel and to protect ourselves. But things that have become part of our fabric, that have shaped us, using the analogy that I often use, that when children are like, or young children are like a warm ball of wax, and everything that happens to you, every scar and every wound, and every positive thing, is like an impression in that wax. And as it hardens, it becomes, the, the impression also hardens. So then now you're an adult and you have hardened within you all kinds of life experiences. And that is brought into, obviously, into all your existing and future relationships. So as such, that's the first question that has to be asked. Is this relationship and how much is it being impacted by past history, both by, the, by each of the spouses? and by parents in regard to their children. And very often, when you dig deep enough, you find, you see, the, it's not difficult to retrace and, and find the correlations of present behavior based on past traumas or past negative experience. And I wanted to be clear, I'm not just talking about extreme trauma, even milder forms, but things that have not been resolved or have become part of your modus operandi as you function as an adult. That, as I said before, is, is determined by three key subjective factors, and I'll repeat them again. One is your own personal biases and your personal um, uh, makeup. And the second is parental and familial influences. And the third is social pressure or social uh, peer pressure. These three things. But being aware of that and being aware of what I said earlier about the resilience and the healing powers of your soul and spirit that is the key. That is the the keys to the salvation. The keys to, to uh, salvation. Maybe not the right word, but the keys to redemption in your personal life. And then, when you're able to look at it, and I go go back to cognitively, even though emotionally you may not be able to change it quickly, but at least you can say, you know what? I see me acting out the way my parents acted out to me, or I see me acting out based on a trauma that happened to me in the past. It would be the equivalent of, you know, I deal with this all the time. Let's say a couple is, uh, you know, two people are dating and they seem to like each other and everything seems to check out. But then there's the resistance, what the people call commitment issues. Okay, commitment issues. And of course, you go through all the usual suspects of like, why, what, what. And then you try to, of course, identify something that would be a cause. Like, let's take a very usual suspect. It's not always the case, but one would be past disappointments. You know, let's say someone fell in love with a woman or vice versa, a woman with a man. And, that, and then the other person did not reciprocate and they, and they were very deeply hurt. So you're not going to easily just open up to someone else because you don't want to be hurt again. Makes total sense. But if you identify that, you're already halfway toward healing. The problem is most people don't identify it. They either are ashamed of it, they don't like to say they were hurt, 
because that's also being part of being hurt, or they are minimizing it. They say, yeah, it happened, but I moved on, and they haven't moved on, even though they say so. Or, it, or it's very deliberate. They know how much they're hurt, and they just don't want to talk. You know, they, I mean, it, there are many factors. But if someone says, yes, it's true, I was deeply hurt, and I am vulnerable as a result, and I don't want to be hurt again, then you can work with the person, because at least they're aware of so-called their blind spot or their weak point. And then you can figure, now we have to figure out how to rebuild how do you rebuild confidence? How do you re-enter, re-immerse in a situation that way you may be hurt again and vulnerable? But at least you're working with something. If a person denies it, it's almost impossible to do anything because they're not letting the resilience of their spirit to come into play. And even when you say what I just said to the person, sometimes they hear it, sometimes they don't. That, again, is not predictable because every one of us is different. It also depends how hurt. You know, there are people who have been hurt more than once. That definitely doesn't help the situation. But, so what do I suggest often in a case where a person says, either they don't, they, they deny that they're vulner- they were vulnerable and were hurt, or they minimize it. So sometimes the way to go is the other direction. Instead of focusing on the wound, you focus on the positive. Because you don't have to always go on an all-out assault on someone's psyche to try to convince them to acknowledge their weak points. That's not always a healthy thing to do. If a person has too much resistance, I'm a believer that denial can be also a healthy thing because it means it's like a very deep wound where you don't have to go push it just to prove the point that there's a wound there. You know, sometimes that's not the way to go. Maybe the way to go is to strengthen other parts of the body and automatically it'll spill over. It's like exercising other parts of the body so then you build strength and it'll automatically strengthen also the weaker part. And the same thing is with the spirit. Again, same idea. What do you do? You teach people about their soul. You talk about, for example, in the morning we say in the, the prayer, the soul you've given me is pure. And then it says you've created it, and you've shaped it, and you'd have imbued it within me, and you protect it. Earlier we say, thank you for returning my soul to me. So you help people understand what is their soul like. Now, this may sound like an academic exercise. It's not. What you're really teaching a person is about themselves. You want to teach them you have a soul. The soul's been returned to you every morning, and it's pure. So anything that happened to you, the soul is completely refreshed in the morning, and it's like it's a new, it's like a new person. So this is a somewhat, of, I don't want to say a backdoor in, but it's another way to deal with somebody, to build strength, instead of attacking and saying, okay, let's look at the usual suspect, which is you were vulnerable, you were hurt, you don't want to be hurt again. Maybe teach somebody about their soul and the resilience of the soul and the ability for the soul to be uh, refreshed and regenerate. And just like a body can have a wound or a scar and then heal, same thing with your soul. And when you start feeding someone that oxygen, so to speak, that self-awareness of their own spiritual identity and their soul's power, that is like the exercise that strengthens them. So then, with time, and I don't know how much time, sometimes it can be quick, sometimes a little longer, where they can then be rebuild and say, you know what, if that's me, I have more, I have more power than I think I have, which is, of course, the goal. And then, instead of saying, okay, let's overcome the wound, this, the, new, the rebuilt confidence that a person has in themselves and their soul becomes a force that can help them re-enter situations and say, you know what, I can go there and be less afraid. 
And yes, if I may be hurt, I may be hurt, but I also have strengths to deal with being hurt. If a person, for example, suffered an accident, a swimming accident, and they're afraid to go back into the water, okay, so it may take time for them to rebuild, but once they do, then they go, and you know what? Yes, water is dangerous, and it could pose risks, but I know how to swim. I know how to navigate. And that's my counterforce that gives me the confidence to deal with water and its challenges. Now, this, again, is a process, a process that begins cognitively and then works, in, works its way into the emotions. And each person is no one-size-fits-all. Each one of us functions differently when it comes to this uh, process. But what is the end result and what's the goal? The goal is that what has happened in your past should not shape your present and your future. When I say shape, it should not be, you should not be a victim of it. Maybe shape is not the right. It should shape in one way, yes, because, which I'm going to get to in a moment, which is what you've learned from the past. But I don't want to speak about that until I finish this point. Because here the key is that you are not defined by what has happened in the past because you have the, resilience, the resilient spirit that can heal. That doesn't mean it didn't happen to you. It doesn't mean you have to deny it. It doesn't mean you have to put it under the, push it under the rug. But it means it does not define you. And as such, you, can, you don't have to bring it into your present relationships. I've often dealt with this situation where, let's say, a person, a couple, one, of the, one, one, one side of the couple went through serious trauma in their lives, abandoned by their parents, or, um, or other type of dysfunctionality or abuse or direct abuse or absenteeism, whatever it may be. Okay, then they met a, uh, another they, they, they fell in love with each other. They really care about each other. They get to know each other more. And, and one of them sees the other person is very needy and very emotionally vulnerable. Whether it's the she or the he, it could be either way. So there's no rule. And what happens, often many things can happen now. And there's a lot of challenges involved because the relationship can be a little uneven because one person has more emotional, deeper emotional needs than the other. So even though the person who's giving the, who's giving more emotions to the other may not be resentful but at some point it could drain them and it could feel like imbalanced like I'm taking care of you all the time and what about me so even though in the beginning it sounds very romantic and very noble like the knight in shining armor that comes to be a savior and often people do gravitate to the savior mode but saviors are not good for long term relationships somewhere somewhere is going to come to haunt the relationship okay so here we have a situation Person, they're, they're very different. One person grew up in a very, let's say, confident, healthy home. The other person did not. That's the reality on the ground. So what do you do? Does this mean the relationship is doomed? Absolutely not. Obviously what you do is you want total disclosure, so to speak, transparency. You, people should know what they're in for because lying or denying is not going to help anyone. So you know, okay, this woman went through a difficult time. I love her. I'm ready to give and everybody, it's all open on the table, and you try to help them understand the surrealities of the situation. Now, you can have a situation, what they call codependency, where one person who's in emotional, deep emotional need or has been traumatized is constantly dependent on the, on the person, on their, on their spouse or on their, their partner for emotional, um, reinfor- uh, emotional validation. And they're all very needy again and again and again. And, um, and the person who's giving could be, as I said before, could be giving, but at some point may backfire. It may backfire because this woman or man could say, you know what, that's who I am. 
What do you want? This is what happened to me. My parents abandoned me when I was a child. Or I was hurt in this and this way. But that is not necessarily acceptable completely. Yes, you need to have compassion for a person like that because you have the compassion because it is so-called a liability or a handicap, if you wish. But what you want to teach that person is to build the resilience and strength that you don't just need your partner or spouse to compensate for you. And they have to provide. You have to learn to love yourself. You have to learn to nurture yourself. Because then you can expect the partner can say then, you know what, yes, I'll compensate when you're in need. But I know you're also building yourself up. I don't want to have my entire life to have a person that's just needy and it's a one-way street. So you can see from this how a relationship can go two directions. It can go in a very bad way because at some point it's going to explode because the person says, you know what, okay, I've given and given and given, but you don't change. You keep on being the same needy person. Whereas if that person who is in need does actually build their resilience and build, and build their own self-value and self-love, then you're dealing with a partnership. So yes, the partnership may have been based on some different differences because people are different, but at least both are contributing and both are working on it. And there's no better way to capture this balance as in Hillel's classic words where he said, If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? That means the need to have your individuality and the confidence in yourself that no one else is going to do it for you. You can't expect another to give you love. You have to have self-love, healthy self-love. And then there's the second half, only then. After that, he says, if I'm only for myself, if I'm isolated as an individual and completely self-contained, what am I? So if you read it ostensibly, it seems like a contradiction. First he says, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Then it suddenly says, if I'm only for myself, who am I? The answer is because it goes in that order. We are born individuals. Nobody's born married. You grow up in a home, hopefully in a healthy home. You develop your own self. You're now a complete self. And then you seek out a partner in life, not to compensate or to give you a self, but to help you transcend yourself where you both become more than the sum of the parts. So if you look at it as like two circles, here's one. One side of the couple. And here's the second. And they both develop their circles, okay? And then comes a point where they meet, and they meet like this. Not one swallows up or annihilates the other, but two circles, like a chain, where they're now stronger because they both complement each other. Just like two people who join together to create music. So each one has their strength, and they have to do their thing completely. And then the other comes and complements, and they both can create some music that's greater than the sum of the parts. That's what a real relationship is. And when there's not that balance, you'll always have problems. If there's either too much anili, meaning too much individuality, then there's no couple. There's no partnership. And if it's complete dependence on the other, then you don't have any individuality. How do you balance it? It's not so simple, but, but look in the mirror. Go back again to the human body. From my flesh I behold God. The human body is the best teacher. Nature is the best teacher. Look at all of nature. Look at your body. How many organisms, how many, org- how many systems are there in your, in your body? Hundreds. 75 trillion cells. Trillion. 
and hundreds and hundreds of systems. And separate, you'd never know they work together in this small five, six foot frame of a body. You have all these systems working together in complete in harmony in a healthy person. What is it? It's diversity. It's harmony within diversity. If the heart will start to behave like the brain, and the brain started behaving like the liver, and the liver like the kidneys, it would not be in good shape. Each has to do their thing completely, but like, but like, like exactly in a, uh, in a, in a uh, orchestra, they complement each other, and there's some invisible conductor that is some way coordinating between them all. And of course, a healthy human being, physically healthy and spiritually and emotionally, psychologically healthy, it all works in one very smooth flow to the point you don't even recognize it. It's so seamless. You know, how many steps are happening right now to each of you right now as you breathe in? Around 18 minutes. 18 times we exhale for, for a guilty or I'm bad. Or look what happened to me in my past that should define me. So now I bring it into this relationship. All that impedes any healing and impedes the relationship process. And whether it's from parents to children projecting upon them more inevitable mistakes. We all make mistakes because life is trial and error and we don't always have it figured out. So what's the big thing? Fine. That's what life is about. You live and learn. You'll see all excellence and great people always will come away from learning from what had happened and they grow from it. And they can grow even from a completely negative thing. The people who actually heal, deeply heal, from real trauma in their lives are people who their trauma becomes part of their growth. They realize, I have now deeper sensitivity than someone that did not have that trauma. I can help people because I'm more acutely sensitive and aware of the issues. And a whole list, a litany of, of benefits, so to speak. Now, we all would have preferred not to have the trauma. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about after the fact. You learn from it. You grow from it. I literally, a few months ago, dealt with a similar situation that I, could, I, I think I can uh, invoke here that fits. It was a mother who went through a lot of trauma, and she was now traumatizing her children because she was a nervous wreck from what had happened to her. And now as her children grow into adults. And she began to recognize. She recognized that she was actually doing it. And I said to her, I remember, very smart woman, very, very self-aware. And I said to her, I said, you know, the goal here is, I'm not sure, we're not there yet, but the goal is that the trauma that you had should teach you what not to do instead of teaching you what to do. What you're doing, what you're doing is taking what happened to you and just dumping it on your next generation, on your children. What you really want to do is saying, since it happened and you know the damage is done and you know how much you've been hurt, that you would be working backwards and saying, you know what, I, I of all people know what that trauma is like, not like someone who doesn't. And therefore, I know exactly what not to do. I said, that's your goal. So you're taking the same trauma, but instead of turning it in against someone, you're turning it like, okay, that's something I should not bring into the picture here. And interestingly, she started, I, I suggest she start writing a journal of every time she acts out. And because she started getting a, hand, a control over it, things have changed dramatically. As a matter of fact, recently I suggested to her she should start coaching other people who dealt with trauma. And of course, it's always easier to give advice to others than to yourself. But there's a trick to this. And that is based on a Talmud that says, Everyone who prays for another person, their need will be answered first. 
which if you think about it is a very profound psychological idea that sometimes to give advice to yourself was not going to work because we don't listen to our own advice. But you can give exactly that same brilliant advice to someone else and you do it well because you know the problem and it works. And then you laugh to yourself, you know what, I can't even follow my own stupid advice. But that's what the Talmud says, that when you do that, you actually help someone, it'll come back to you like a boomerang and actually give you strength, maybe directly, indirectly. So by telling somebody, okay, here's what you do, coach somebody how to channel trauma, in other words, harness it toward knowing what not to do instead of doing it, instead of repeating it, and then it will come back, and that's what's happening. I'm not suggesting it gets healed overnight and it's suddenly solved. You know, there's always moments we always go back to our so-called knee-jerk reactions. But it's a completely different world now. She no longer takes it on her children. She's found ways to channel it. And it all began with awareness. It all begins with awareness. You have to be aware of what you're doing. Because when you're not aware, you minimize it or you deny it or you think it's not happening or whatever it is in your mind. You think it's normal. As soon as you're aware, you, it begins the process. Now, it takes integrity. Some people would rather not be aware than be honest. and They'd rather be a liar to themselves and be deceptive and duplicitous. That's already up to the person. But you have to always believe that a human being has the dignity, even if it's been concealed, to, um, to do something about it. It's like people, for example, who will say they're chronic liars, I mean, you really, when it comes down to it and you confront and you really address it, I'm talking about a point where a person can talk about it at least, you'll very often find that their lying comes because they loathe themselves. They, don't, they feel sometimes they don't, deserve, they, they don't even deserve to be non-liar. It's like lying feeds into their self, uh, lack of self-worth. You know, I'm a liar. You know, it became like a natural thing. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I, 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 I cheat. And it's almost, a, a, almost like a, self, um, what's the one? a self-deprecating experience where you like feed into your own lack of self-worth and therefore you do things that, don't, that really make you feel ashamed of yourself. And at some point you lose shame and that's just who you are and now that new reality. That's a perfect example of what, what Hasidic thought would call a soul in exile. The soul is completely trapped by the life that has broken the person. And the soul's resilience and its powers and everything I'm describing is in, is in hiding. And what ne it needs, obviously, is awakening. Now, you can imagine, based on all this, that the key thing here is to not wait. Because the longer you wait, the more the crust gets hardened and the harder it is to break old habits. The faster you can nip it in the bud, the faster you catch something, that allows you to access that resilience and then it grows it's like anything so going to a doctor going back to a physical example where unfortunately someone let's say did not treat an infection and they thought it went away instead the infection ent entered into the bloodstream god forbid or in the bones or something like that and then suddenly it's no longer isolated here it's now everywhere the longer you wait then you're dealing with a situation where now it's become so much part of your reality it's much more difficult to deal with had it been nipped in the bud had it been not in the bud, but at least early stages, then it may, you know. But most people don't want to be uncomfortable, so they push it off. You know? But uh, that's where it comes down to where we have to be support to each other, encourage. You see someone in such a situation, and you try to be of any help, and that help is helping them become aware, helping them deal with it. 
So, in the final analysis, are we, um, can we, can we uh, avoid passing on the trauma of our, of our lives onto our children? Absolutely. It's not even a question. Not only can you avoid it, you could actually turn it into a, a, a positive because you don't take for granted life. You don't take for granted your, your, your childhood. You don't for, take for granted the fragility and the vulnerability of the spirit that could be hurt because you realize from your own experience how one can be really be hurt. So if anything, it really teaches you about how sensitive we need to be because we saw what happened to ourselves. We are sensitive souls, especially as children. That sensitivity can be, unfortunately, sometimes hurt, very deeply hurt. So what should that teach us? It teaches us how sensitive souls are. What, it, what the worst scenario is where you just perpetuate it, and, you, and not only are you not sensitive to yourself, you're also not sensitive to others by projecting or, or uh, in some way um, passing on, perpetuating that, that uh, trauma or the effects of the trauma. The positive side is where you do check yourself. And being human beings who are hopefully people who look at themselves and look at yourself and you want to grow. And you don't want to be trapped in some uh, narrow um, perspective of yourself and your possibilities. You would want, look, love to know that you can broaden your horizons and heighten your sights, that you can really conquer new vistas then that itself should be a motivator to be able to deal with some of these challenges. Now, there's only that much one can say in a more, I don't know, in a general setting where many people are listening to this, because really, going forward, what needs to be done is customize these ideas, each one according to our needs, because we are different types of people. I cannot say that everything I've said till now, it's a formula, but that formula has to then be adapted and customized because different people have different needs and different ways of processing this. So that's something that can't really be done collective. But I would encourage, if anybody's dealing with these challenges, is to take some of these ideas and maybe write them down for yourself and then perhaps find a mentor or find someone you can speak to who can then help you really apply it to your individual and specific life situation. That's the key to everything. So on a positive note, we are now in um, and a good example for this would be today is uh, what day in the month? There we go. He's our resident calendar expert going back to the beginning of time, right? What day in the week was I another first year of creation? You can't calculate that? Huh? Really? What about the year of Matan Tar? He's good at this, yeah. So Zion is the birthday and the yard site of Moses, the great Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Talmud says, I'm just grounding some of what I said till now in a Talmudic uh, statement for those that are the scholars among you that want some sources. So Moses says in the Talmud that Haman, Haman, the villain of Purim, so when he was... Um, when he became incited by Mordechai not bowing to him and decided he's going to annihilate the entire Jewish people. Right? Anoshim, young and old, children and, and women and children. So he threw lots. 
he was a little superstitious man, or maybe not so, so maybe he was more of a sorcerer. So he threw lots to find out what day should he designate as the big day of genocide. And the lots, that's why Purim is called Purim. Purim is a Purugeril, is called the lots that he threw. It's another discussion why would a holiday be called lots based on the lots Purim th- uh, the Hyman threw, but that's another discussion. We'll, have, we'll talk about that in the coming weeks maybe. So he threw lots, and what did it fall out? The month of Adar. This month, this Hebrew month of Adar, the last Hebrew month before Passover, which is in the lunar cycle, the first month is, is uh, Nisan, next month, month of Passover. And he celebrated Sameach. He put, oh, wow, that's his luck. Why? Because he knew this is the month where Moses passed away. So it was like a bad omen for the Jewish people that their great leader, Moshe Rabbeinu, the one that brought the Torah to them, the one that led them out of Egypt and all the miracles and all the 40 years in the wilderness. This is the the month in which he passed away, so he thought it was an excellent month to choose to annihilate Moses' people, the children of Israel. The Talmud says, however, he made a mistake. It's true, it's the yard site, but it's also his birthday. That he didn't know. And since the birthday comes before the yard site, so it's Magdim Rafur Lamaka, it's like the healing comes before the, the cure comes before the illness. So actually he chose the month that would end up being the biggest, most joyous month, because the month when Moses was also born. Which countered the negative of his passing. And that's why we throw Shkolim, we an Erev Purim, and the, and the fast of Esther this year will be a week from when, a week from, from today, next Wednesday. We take shkalim, you know. We, we take a, the afternoon. We take a half coin, a silver coin. It's like a shekel, and we we can make a donation to commemorate that which was done in the time of the temple, which was the shkalim that so-called counter the shkalim, the coins that Haman used to designate this month as a month of, of, a, of, of a death. And it becomes a month that's called a month that's transformed to joy and the greatest joy of all. When other enters, we increase in joy. So what's the story behind this, this Haman thing? First of all, I mean, he was a smart man, Haman. He couldn't figure out it's also his birthday. He could only know the yards. I mean, just needed to do a little Google search. I know there was no Google then. I understand. But just like he knew the yard site, he couldn't figure that. And what's the meaning of all this? And the answer is really, and everything I discussed till now, really explains the point. And that is, in life we have two scenarios, in every given scenario. Anything can go to the negative, and anything can be used to the positive. There's no such thing as pure negative energy. There's no such thing as pure positive energy. Expression ain't tev belay ra ain't ra belay tev. There's no such thing as good without bad, and there's no bad without good in the world in which we live. After Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the messianic future age, that will be eradicated, the evil, but the evil will be transformed to good. So, whenever path, like the Torah says, to behold, I give you before today two paths: the path of life and the path of opposite of life. And you shall choose the path of life. So we have in every situation, both scenarios are possible. 
the Jewish people at the time of Purim were dealing with real challenges. They had real problems. And Haman was taking advantage of it and was ready to do what he did like a Hitler. So there's the negative side. And you could look at this day of seven, seventh of others, Moshe Rabbeinu's passing, this great, great man, the greatest man ever in history that spoke to God face to face. He passes away. That's like a real descent, a real uh, sad day. To the point that it says, had Moses gone into Israel, to the promised land, the temple would never have been able to be destroyed and Mashiach would have come. But he didn't. It's a very sad day. But it's the same day he was also born. So translating that into personal experiences, we may have experiences, traumatic experiences. I'm sure it was a very traumatic day when Moses passed away. And yet, it did not make the Jewish people weak, it made them stronger. Because it was also the day that he was born. So just because you knew that until the Tchis HaMesim, Moses would pass away, that doesn't take away from the power that he brought into this world, the light that he brought into this world. So in our case, we all have a Moses within us. And though on one hand you could say, one second, there's the negative side of the Zion other, that Haman thought he could take advantage of. In truth, no, we're not victims. Every negative has a positive. There's the positive side of his birth and all that he contributed. And that's what the Talmud was trying to tell us. That in everything in life, there's always both sides. Purim is not just a holiday of joy. It came from a joy that came from the opposite. It was a day that could have been the worst possible day in Jewish history. Because the Persian Empire controlled 127 nations, the empire, where all Jews lived there. There were no Jews in America then. There was no one except in those countries where all Jews. It would have been a total genocide. And yet that was transformed. And personal note, it means that there's nothing that can destroy you if you don't allow it to. And that there's always that positive side and the resilience of the spirit, as I've been talking about, that counters any negative experience. And in this type of spiritual mystical thinking, the good is always more powerful than the negative. So even if negative things happen to us, it's never as strong as the power of the divine goodness of your, the inherent divine goodness of your soul. So to make a statement that I am not worthy or I am, um, uh, I loathe myself or I have shame and I'm embarrassed and I'm guilty is really the most greatest possible form of self-abuse. Because you're basically saying that, you, that your soul, which is your positive side, is weaker than the negative self-perception. In a way, you are perpetuating what the abuser did to you. The abuser made you feel like worthless, and now you feel you're worthless. The force that heals is the recognition, no, that it's not the negative side, it's the positive side. It's the positive side of Zion, of this day of the seventh of Adam. I'll elaborate.